Hello and welcome to the Rationable Podcast, your weekly deep dive into how science and critical thinking make you immune to scams, fads and hoaxes. I am your host Abhijit. Let's dig in. Happy New Year and Happy New Decade. Welcome to the Rationable Podcast. This year it kind of got me thinking about you know the last decade of my life and the huge amounts of change that have come with it it's been it's been an enlightening decade let me put it that way so at the very beginning <laughs> okay 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 let me back up a bit the reason why i want to cover this is because this is the decade that i became a skeptic and a critical thinker and a science enthusiast even though i'm not a scientist it's i started off Okay, let me say I ended the last decade being about as gullible as anyone else and not very much of a critical thinker, not nothing seriously anyway. I mean just as much of a critical thinker as we all are, really. And we all are to some extent or the other. But last year is where a lot of it took off and this year I can with confidence say that I am a skeptic. I am a skeptic activist if you could call it that, being in the podcast business if that allows me to be um if i need to do crazier things maybe this decade will bring me to you know take me to that next level um and i'm also a science communicator so there i'm i never like at the beginning of this decade i didn't think i'd ever get to this place i never even thought this was something that i would want to do but here i am and i'm sure there are many people who think that my work right now is arrogant cynical close-minded to the bigger world and to what nature can offer that our senses don't perceive or you know that i'm just close-minded or just holier than thou but i assure you this is not my intent and i hope that's something that comes across in my podcasts and in the articles and show notes and well everything i put out there i do not i i am the last person to call myself a know it all i do not know it all and i don't even come close to it i admit i am always tempted to be a dick about it and um, to pretend as if i know better than anyone else but that would just make me a dick and instead of uh, being that instead i have become a skeptic and it's one of the hardest things i've done because it involves testing your beliefs to breaking point now testing your beliefs and finding out you were wrong about something isn't a comfortable feeling but if you want to build an armor against con artists fake news charlatans bad ideas in general it has to be done and we all must strive towards it i can't say that i mean i don't think any skeptic worth their salt is going to say that they know it all or that that they are uh, you know that they have all the answers to everything and that they're absolutely certain about their position because by definition as a skeptic you can't be sure of your position you have to always be willing to change your mind if the evidence shows you otherwise 
anyway, we'll come to that a little bit later. To start things off with, I think at the bottom line is that it has been an incredibly humbling journey over these last 10 years. And let me tell you how it all went down. Of course, as you would have known by now, the title of this episode is How I Became a Skeptic in Five Steps. And um, so the first step was about evolution. Now, I wasn't a creationist, but we'll come to that in a second. This is where it all began a little bit more than a decade ago. This is about 12 years ago, I think. A creationist friend of mine uh, told me the theory of evolution was bullshit. We were traveling in our commuting vehicle off to office um, where I used to work. And I was sitting in the front seat. He was in the back seat. And so when I did a double take, I almost knocked my own head off. Now, during these conversations that, that came soon after that proclamation, I realized that I had taken evolution for granted and I had gaping holes in my knowledge. Hell, I was 27 years old and I didn't even know what the word creationist was. Talk about sheltered living. Um, so I started digging. After reading Scientific American's special edition on evolution, I went online. I searched for all the reliable science sources I could find. Of course, they were all supporting evolution while all the religious ones supported creationism. <laughs> I could see a pattern emerging. So what does this have to do with skepticism? I was forced to reevaluate how I thought about evolution and investigate it as if, you know, to figure out for the first time if it was true or not. Questioning my own deeply held beliefs and biases and anyone's is the cornerstone of critical thinking. And this was my first lesson. It really gives you a reality check on what you believe and how you think. Now, when your head cools from the debating, if you are also faced with such an you know situation and your bloodshot eyes blink towards normalcy, it's essential to stop questioning your opponent and examine your own beliefs. Take a breath. Accept the mistakes you have made and understand the facts about what is being discussed. If the evidence points towards your views, excellent. Now your teeth are sharper like mine had become in that first incident. If they prove you wrong, have the humility to tuck your tail firmly between your legs, hold your head high and admit you were wrong. Then alter your beliefs according to evidence. After all, you've learned something new. Now, the second one, and you might not believe this, but the second step towards me becoming a skeptic was ancient technology and aliens. Back then, I had just moved to the UK. I was studying professional writing, and I wanted to write a part of a science fiction novel for my final dissertation, as I was a total sci-fi nerd since I was 12. My Tutor gave me the idea of a first contact story with a twist. The aliens we would meet would be human. Now, we've gotten used to seeing aliens looking like us from shows like Star Trek, but aliens would probably look nothing like us or anything else on this planet, no matter how strange the creature, because they've had a completely independent um, evolution on a different planet in a different environment. You know what I mean? The premise would be that humans had discovered space travel millennia ago 
and had fled the earth before their civilization got wiped out and forgotten. Like the legends of Atlantis, for example. Now, this got me doing research on ancient technology since I was, uh, since I wanted to write a, like a hard sci-fi novel. So I wanted to be as evidence-based as I could be. The problem was, I was, I'd always kind of believed that ancient civilizations did have high technology. I mean, hey, I grew up in movies like Stargate. And when I was a kid, there'd be shows like Mahabharata and Ramayana on Indian television that gave everyone the idea that ancient Indians had developed planes and missiles. And we still have politicians you know, thinking that that was a fact. Now, my family also had books like Erg von Daniken's uh, Chariot of the Gods. We sometimes discussed his claims that, you know, that we might have been visited and helped by aliens thousands of years ago. The Incans, the Mayans, the Egyptians might have all had a little help from the aliens. That's why they all built pyramids, right? So, uh, but was that true? So I thought I definitely would find some ancient alien stuff in my research or some ancient technology, but mm, not so much. I found absolutely no evidence for any ancient alien or technological artifacts. A couple of points stuck with me that really shattered my beliefs. If high technology existed thousands of years ago, we can assume sophisticated metal and alloys would have been made, which are durable but lighter than stone. These wouldn't just decay or disappear or corrode away, but we found no such metals, no plastics, no circuitry, and no computational tech of any sort from that period. No archaeologist has found it yet. Now, humans have always been as ingenious as we are now. This is my second point that stuck with me. We have always solved big problems with very sophisticated solutions. It's not crazy to think that even with the time and manpower, the rocks that made the pyramids or Stonehenge could have been moved into place using the engineering capabilities of the period. It's been well documented and even demonstrated. You can find stuff on YouTube where you can just see a single man and the rudimentary tools he's come up with to move huge blocks of stone. There's no mystery here. There's no need to credit aliens when humans were evidently capable of accomplishing all these fantastic feats of engineering. We weren't stupid then. We just had to figure out problems. Now, over the years, over the generations, every generation has learned from the previous one and built upon the technology and the understanding of us, of science, from the previous generation. Um, I mean, we couldn't build skyscrapers from the very beginning, right? I mean, we, we don't have skyscrapers from back then. We don't have, um, you know, smartphones, which were which the Egyptians used. We don't have anything of that sort because they didn't understand it then. We have slowly, steadily, step by step, you know, made a smartphone from a computer that started off being a, the size of a whole room, which has then shrunk down to a size that could fit on our desk to now something that fits in our hands. That's a step-by-step -step process. That is a slow evolution of technology over time. For the science fiction genre, though, these ideas had inspired a crazy number of stories. So technically, I suppose I still could have used it if I wanted to, but then 
when I learned the truth about the absence of ancient technology and ancient aliens, my world was shaken. And I didn't want to perpetuate the kind of myths that I had believed in anymore. So I had to abandon it and think of something else to write about. Now, around the same time came the third step in my journey. Alternative medicine. I watched a snippet of Richard Dawkins' documentary that spoke of homeopathy and how little sense it made. And it didn't do anything. Now, I had been brought up to believe that homeopathy and Ayurveda were legitimate forms of medicine. I had even had treatments as a child. My parents and my whole family swore by it. My friends did. Most of India swore by it all and just assumed that they worked. Even mainstream doctors in India don't hesitate in recommending alternative therapies to their patients, at least most of them. But how could they all be wrong? So I went to as many reliable medical websites as I could find. All of them agreed that homeopathy had been studied hundreds of times, but shown not to work better than a placebo for any condition. I've written a lot more about this in my article, and I've got a podcast episode as well about whether homeopathy works. So I won't go too much into detail about it. It's, there's a lot to uncover there, so I really strongly urge you to go and check that out. But this was my first domino when it came to medicine. Other forms of so-called complementary and alternative medicine, which sometimes called CAM, some people like to call it SCAM, like acupuncture, chiropractic, naturopathy, which is basically a big mashup of all of them put together, they all followed soon after that. Now, I realized that the ideology behind alternative medicine drives people away from mainstream medicine and puts them in harm's way. And that's something I can't tolerate. That's why alternative medicine has a very special place on Rationable. The next big step was diets. Number four. Now, I've been chubby since the age of 10. Still, thanks to my athletically inclined brother and father, I had a pretty common sense approach to fitness. I, uh, theoretically at least, um, <laughs> I didn't really go into practicals much. Um, eat less, move more, you know, the usual mantra. But uh, I did that every now and then, but I never really did enough of it to make much of a difference. Then I went to study in the UK and I got introduced to The 4-Hour Body by Timothy Ferris by a friend. This was the first time I had read a book this thorough on dieting and weight loss, or at least a part of it, which was concerned with that topic. So in the section about weight loss, it minimized the amount of exercise one needs to do in exchange for changing one's diet. To grossly oversimplify the book's recommendations, I had to, one, cut out all the white carbs, including dairy, for six days a week, include 30 grams of protein in every meal, which is reasonable, and the remaining day, the remaining, the seventh day, I could eat whatever I wanted. And it worked to an extent, but it really wasn't sustainable or affordable, so I had to stop. But one idea stuck with me. It wasn't something that was explicitly stated in the book, but I, my takeaway was that carbs made you fat, but fat didn't. Now, I could just blame carbs for making me fat. I was already thinking critically at the time, 
But I couldn't find much science refuting it. I actually would search for things like ketogenic diet science and the keto diet is wrong in Google. Instead, I was getting pushed towards keto and paleo. I don't know why that was, but this could be Google just keeping me in an echo chamber. Uh, there's more about that story in my episode on the ketogenic diet, which if you haven't listened to already, I, I would strongly recommend you do so you can see what my the rest of my story was about. Now, when I diversified my search on platforms I just started to use, like Audible, evidence-based sources on nutrition started popping up. Then I tried podcasts, and this is when I started finding some real evidence in science-based diet advice. I realized nothing was magic. Just carbs or just fat didn't make me fat. Eating too many calories, whether from carbs, fats, or all of them, would make me put on weight. Now, my view has also changed from becoming completely anti-keto to a moderate perspective that the best diet for you is the one you can stick to for life. This is because the topic is filled with context and nuance, just like anything else. As for me, now I've started eating fewer meals and tracking my macros, and that is definitely working. But for me, for you, you need to figure that one out for yourself. But if you want more advice, uh, more science-based information on diet and nutrition, just let me know in the comments or tweet at me. I'll give you all the details in the end. And I welcome your comments on that. I'd love to write some more about it. So let me know. Now, the final step that was probably the most recent for me to take towards skepticism is that I've always been trying to figure out how to lose weight. I mean, the diet was the first step, but the next was exercise. Now, the whole... I had succeeded once when I was 20, when I would spend about two and a half hours at the gym, six days a week. Now, I've never had that kind of time again. So long story short, I've never really managed to find a fitness program that I connected with until now, or at least... I'll tell you about that a little bit later. Now, back in the day, that's about six years ago or so, I think, I came across a channel on YouTube called Functional Patterns. The host, Naudi Aguilar, seemed to know a lot of stuff about human anatomy and could make some seriously crazy moves and balancing acts on stability balls and stuff. So I was impressed and I was instantly curious. Now, He's a big promoter of myofascial release techniques, basically a way to massage your muscles yourself to release tightness. He also seems to think that that somehow increases your ability to, uh, your muscles to grow. Uh, he's also obsessed about how an anterior pelvic tilt was one of the main reasons for back pain. And I had back pain. And his techniques worked wonders for mine. So as well as it improved my posture, it improved my gait. So now he kept talking about functional fitness, incorporating how the body had evolved to move. And you remember, I have become a pretty big fan of evolution. So I was in, I was a fan. However, I, I could only find a little bit of science to support it. Foam rolling and myofascial re release had some evidence to suggest that it could lead to faster recovery, improved rehab of, after an injury, and probably improved mobility in some cases. But the first red flag was the fact that Naudi didn't refer to any scientific literature. 
he had just a few obscure books that he recommended for further reading. So where was he getting all these ideas relating to human anatomy and evolution? I couldn't find anything substantial. No scientific papers, no articles on science magazines, nothing. I mean, he knew the human anatomy, but <laughs> where else were he getting any of the ideas from? He didn't reply to any of my questions about any of this either. Another similar YouTube channel called Gorilla Zen Training did answer my questions and he said that his techniques were too cutting edge for science to have really discovered or caught up with, which is always a little bit of a reason to be skeptical. Now, then more red flags started piling up. Naudi was dead against mainstream weightlifting and said so in many of his videos. The first time I found out that was probably a disingenuous stance was when I was reading a book called Bigger, Leaner, Stronger by Mike Matthews, Michael Matthews. It was solidly based in science and it gave context to the applications of heavy resistance training for weight loss and overall health. Then channels like those of Brett Contreras and Shredded Sports Science taught me that weight training had lower risks of injury than some of the exercises, functional patterns and similar channels were recommending. Exercise scientists like Brad Schoenfeld had also done a massive amount of research in the field of weight training. Now, it's from these guys that I learned that bodybuilding can also have amazing results in terms of posture, athleticism, and endurance. Squats, deadlifts, hip thrusts, bench presses were actually perfectly functional movements that were also what we had evolved to do. I mean, pick up heavy things, right? <laughs> Now, there was nothing inherently unnatural or dangerous about any of them, unless you were doing them wrong, of course. But that's, well, pretty much anything else in life. Then I found Naudi swearing by, not swearing, swearing, but he swears a lot anyway, but he was swearing by cryotherapy, which has absolutely no evidence to support that it does anything for you. In fact, there are some sources that suggest that it actually slows down your muscle building potential by not letting, by slowing down the processes that build muscle after you've worked out. Soon after that, I watched videos of him badmouthing people like Brett Contreras and the whole practice of traditional resistance training. This was the last functional straw. I strongly believe in rational, reasonable discourse if there's a disagreement. Swearing, arrogance, and trolling do nothing to change minds or move any discussion forward. That's why I promote being rationable. Now, science and nutrition are particularly hard to test. Now, fitness and nutrition are particularly hard to test over long periods of time. And we have a long way to go, but there's already been a lot of headway made. Researchers like Brad Schoenfeld, Alan Aragorn, Lane Norton, Kevin Bass, or Bass, Brett Contreras, and many others have worked hard to put science into fitness. Go check them out on social media. It's through science that I now understand which exercises can be harmful, beneficial, and their nuances and contexts. So-called functional fitness, though, which has now saturated YouTube and Instagram, has none of that, but rather depends on the spectacle, like doing barbell squats on a gym ball. These can be downright dangerous for most people. Don't get me wrong, though. There are movements in functional training that can be very beneficial if worked into your regime. Like I've heard some people say, it's movement training. 
It may be helpful in some sports too, but it's not magic and it's not this or that. My main problem with functional training is that so many of its promoters have little to no concern for science and depend solely on their own and their clients' anecdotes about how they feel and what certain exercises do for them. Plus, for getting views and follows, many give such horrible advice and recommend such dangerous exercises that they just might or already have hurt some of their followers. Now, let's wrap this all up. At the beginning of this decade, I was as gullible as anyone could be. Still, a couple of strange situations turned me onto a path that has led me here. I started actively seeking out uh, evidence to prove or disprove my beliefs. I think this is the most crucial step as a critical thinker. Now, I have doubled back to look at my views with more scrutiny because I wanted to know the truth regardless of my biases. Falsification is an essential aspect in science and life. And that's something that I've realized the hard way. The best way to test a theory, a hypothesis, or a belief is to try and prove it wrong. If there's something you can't prove wrong, there's a good chance you can't prove it right either. Now, if I start with a premise that I believe is true, like only carbs make you fat, and keep looking for ways to confirm it, I would quickly find many. If I try to find ways to disprove it, there's a better chance that I'll find out the truth, which is precisely what happened. If you hold a belief, keep testing it, keep trying to disprove it. If it continues to hold up to scrutiny, keep believing. If it breaks, then it's time to change your belief to align with the evidence. There's something, this is something that we must all do with everything we believe. And the more critical the belief is to us, the more we need to test it. Whether you believe in God, Ayurveda, human-caused climate change, intermittent fasting, touching wood, marriage, or whatever, examine your beliefs. Look for the science behind it all. Look for evidence. Prove yourself wrong as I did and continue to do, and you will learn something new and beautiful that just may change your life. So is there something that you believed that you proved yourself wrong about or were proven wrong about that you now know to be true? What's your story? And is there anything else that you would like me to write more in detail? I mean, I have written about homeopathy and the ketogenic diet, but if there are any other topics that I've mentioned today that you think I should write about or I should go more into detail about, then just let me know. Get in touch with me. Until next time, always be rational. Thank you so much for listening to The Rationable Podcast with me, Abhijit. For the show notes, transcript, references and further reading, visit www.berationable.com. Let's continue the conversation on The Rationable Conversations group on Facebook and at Be Rationable on Twitter. If social media is not your thing, you can also write to me at abhijit at berationable.com. If you enjoyed the episode, consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. Until next time, be rationable. <laughs>